So all this month we've been offering teachings on wisdom, the wisdom side of the practice, vipassana, which is definitely what we're practicing here. Um, To wisdom is linked the path and the wing of compassion. And when I'm saying compassion, it's really broad. It comprises metta, this beautiful quality of loving kindness, and uh, mudita, and equanimity as a Brahma-Vihara practice. All these are comprised in the wing of compassion, and that's what I'd like to talk about tonight. And mostly compassion towards ourselves, because that's where it begins. Um, There's a teaching that said there's two wings for a bird to fly. One wing is the wing of wisdom, and the other is the wing of compassion. And for the teachings to really come to maturity, really fully uh, come to maturity, one is nourishing the other. One is really nourishing the wing of wisdom, and the other nourishes the wing of compassion. They meet. They're completely comprised in one another. To enable the heart and mind to mature fully, to develop in a way that we cultivate harmony within ourselves, there's an understanding that one needs to pay close attention. And I think that by now we really understand that paying close attention, we are inevitably linked to meet our heart, that space of the heart that is so tender at times. And it calls for a loving care and a loving tenderness to be able to nourish our path for it to lead towards the end of suffering. So an attitude of wishing ourselves well, an intention that wishes other beings happiness and peace is the crown, is really the ground of living a harmonious life, a wholesome life, you can say, that is based in sila, which are the precepts that we take together. So you can understand that the spiritual practice is really enlivened by all these aspects. And it's not just one aspect that we mature here, but they really come together. And all these good qualities of generosity of heart, of kindness, are nurturing the heart when it is in pain. A lot of times in the process of maturity of this practice, there are going to be moments when pain arises. And it's kind of the role of compassion to take care of the pain. The word is karuna in Pali, and literally it means kindness. It's a kindness that is focused specifically when there's pain. It can be our own pain and the pain of other beings. So you can say that compassion's flavor or the scent is to witness the pain and the suffering without pushing it away, which is our habitual tendency, without resisting it in any way. And we call forth 
this quality of serenity, of peace, of non-judgmental attention, which we cultivate in our vipassana practice when there is the presence of pain. So the Buddha's teachings expose that it's possible to live a life that is not conditioned by suffering. And you know that the whole teaching is about that. The Four Noble Truths is really an incredible, empowering possibility, potential for ourselves that it is possible to reach the end of suffering. And of course, people then, just like today, you know, wonder, doubt that it's possible. And in one of his teachings, he really had the formula, if it would not be possible, I would not teach this path. But because I do see in my own experience that there is a true possibility to reach the end of suffering, I ask you, to undertake the training, to really undertake the path that leads one to the end of suffering. There's a quote from Chogyam Trungpa that really resonates with me. And the quote says this. It says, when there is pain, it's love or loving kindness that gives birth to a natural compassion. The compassionate heart holds the pain and sorrow of our life and of all beings with tenderness. It is this tender heart that has the power to transform the world. And we can really notice that in our practice here, there is a softening of the heart. There is a tenderness that comes forth. And it's that tenderness that we enable to be present when there is resistance. So what it mean is that we're willing to witness the pain. We're really calling forth that kindness to be able to see exactly what it is that is causing the pain, what it is that is creating the suffering. And so these two aspects of heart and mind really hold each other's hands. The loving tenderness and the wholehearted attention. They really serve only one purpose, one meaning. And that is opening. Opening to what is, rather than being closed. And it's done in a graceful manner. Often that's exactly what is missing. And the word graceful manner here, I'm linking to the quality of patience that I talked about the other morning meaning that it's a process. So often, we just want to be open, right? (laughs) And do not care and are not tender to undertake the process of opening. Does a flower just 
opens up just like that? Is it closed and then suddenly open? It was extraordinary to see the opening process of that sunflower that emerged during this month. And I was sure that I wouldn't be seeing the sunflower opening before my departure. Because it was closed, it was closed, it was closed. (laughs) And it felt like it was going to be closed forever. (laughs) And suddenly, it was open. And how could I have missed (laughs) the opening process? Because I was really paying careful attention. Well, it happened without me witnessing that opening. And there's another one. You know, there's other buds out there. So you can really take reference into the world of nature to really notice how precious and how graceful this manifestation of opening happens in life. Due to causes and conditions. Water element, gentle rain, a little bit of sun, the wind smashes us a bit. And, you know, there's this whole undertaking that is really quite beautiful. Can we see our own process in the same way, flowering, like the process of that flower out there? It's really a mirror for us. The Buddha was once asked by a disciple, would it be true to say that a part of our training is for the development of love and compassion? You might have heard the answer. And the Buddha replied, no, it's not true to say that it's a part of the training. The whole of our training is for the development of love and compassion. Because that's the manifestation of wisdom. We understand, and the expression of that wisdom, of that understanding, is love and compassion. How could it be otherwise? A student once asked Deepama, the wonderful Indian woman, extremely powerful yogi and teacher that once lived in Calcutta. So a student was asking her whether she should do wisdom practice or loving-kindness practice. And it's often a question, right? We ask ourselves, okay, I'm here for some practice. Is it better to do metta practice for some time Or should I solely practice vipassana, wisdom? And her response was to laugh. (laughs) Because she said, I don't see any difference. (laughs) When there's love, one is fully present. When one is fully present, there's bound to be love. And so they merge. And so whichever one you choose, the expression is that we are clearly enabling the heart and mind to open, whichever way we want to go about it. So 
the small mind creates that separation, but there isn't one. There is no separation. The two wings are needed for the bird to fly. One wing for a bird to fly. Can't do it. So one begins to see life and to sense life, to feel life from a different perspective. A perspective that really everything is included. And we can invite, there's an embodiment of everything that is integrated in our practice, whatever it is that is presented in the heart and mind. That is the motivation. And I think that if we have and we hold in our heart that aspiration, then truly the process will unfold. It begins with ourselves. What we're doing here is just so precious, not only for ourselves, but for the world. Living consciousness, opening our hearts in this wild world is a task of which we cannot measure the value whether it's done here or whether you take it home and you continue to live the Dhamma out there as you meet the world. Gandhi said, you must be the change you wish to see in the world. And it's so beautiful because so much of the time, you know, we're waiting <laughs> for change to happen. We want the others to do the change. And there's a lot of judging that's happening in that little mind of mine when there's not the spaciousness to say, okay, I'm fully responsible for that change. And this is where I can begin so that we manifest this practice and this process of transformation for the benefit of all beings. The benefits of the beings that we care for, we love, that are close to us, that we call our dear ones, and for the benefit of the beings that we don't know, that we call strangers, the others. And that separation of self and other and that process may tend to melt a little bit because of the heart that is just more tender, that we feel empathy rather than aversion. There's clearly a sense that the suffering is universal. It's not just us. All humans, all beings, living beings, animals, have the same predicament of suffering. And yet, we do not need to be closed down, shut down. And we all want to be happy, don't we? All beings, you can ask anybody. I haven't asked one person that doesn't say, oh no, I don't want to be happy. I want to suffer more. <laughs> 
definitely that doesn't exist. So we're motivated to cultivate this wisdom and compassion for others to help the world in whatever way we have at our disposal. And often there's so many grand ideals that we want to concretize, and we miss the small ways that we can just help the neighbor or help ourselves. So living in that spirit of nourishing the awakened mind, heart, it's often a source of great joy for me to read autobiographies of people like Gandhi or Martin Luther King or Nelson Mandela or, you know, all these great beings where you say, okay, wow, they've done such great things in the world and for the world. You know, today the Dalai Lama is just so incredibly cherished and and is such an example of uh, compassion and wisdom. And so it's great to have references like that, that really heightens our aspiration. All these beings, there's not one of them, and you know, I just mentioned a few, have had lives of suffering. It's not that they were exempt and they're just like that. And all of them, if you read their lives, it's an incredible depth of suffering. And yet, exactly like we're doing, it was an enabling of opening to it. This is from the Dalai Lama. He says, when you are aware of your pain and suffering, it just helps you to develop your capacity for empathy, the capacity which allows you to relate to other people's feelings and sufferings. This enhances your capacity for compassion for others. But it starts in our own heart. Just a few months ago, you know, he had uh, a conference that he gave, and it was just so incredible how joyful he can be, and he was smiling, and there were kind of hundreds of people there, and he was just saying, I don't know what it is, but people like me so much. And, you know, he was kind of making fun of this. And he says, I think it's because I value bodhicitta. Bodhicitta, you know what it is, the awakened heart and mind, right? And then he added, he says, I can't claim it all to be awake. I can't even claim to practice it all the time. But I completely value it just to completely value bodhicitta is what I can claim. How incredibly humble. It's just so amazing when you see (laughs) the actions of this human being. And that's exactly it. It's the tender heart, soft heart, a heart that has Certainly, a lot of hardships and difficulties still for the Tibetans, if it's not for himself, and yet can embrace life completely, fully, such a joyful human being. And that's exactly it. 
you know, to be able to have this potential to aspire, to relate in the world from that space of immensity of love and care. So what it is, is that it's not self-absorbed. That's what I can see when I see him. That it's not only concerned by the pain that we're kind of drowning in the pain, completely involved in it and not seeing, acknowledging what is happening. And sometimes that's what is happening. That exactly is what is called for tenderness, for caring, when we are hurting and not seeing that we're hurting. It's so often a beginning of a process where already we're acknowledging, yes, there is suffering here. There is pain. I am hurting. It's not the beginning of the process. It's not the first step at all. Before, I'm probably sure that uh, there were layers of denial, resistance, ignorance, not being aware even of the fact that we're hurting and how we run encircled in our life, how we undertake activity to not face what it is that is underneath. And so that's what's happening in the reality of the emotional life when we are connecting to the fact that, oh yeah, there's pain. It's immense. It's huge. We're moving out of that space of ignorance or denial or confusion. And there's already a possibility of, oh, the process of seeing, seeing what is happening. So there's a wide range of feelings in the body and the mind that can really enable us to feel pain. And we allow that journey to be alive in ourselves. whatever it is that is presenting itself, walking through the layers. And even if we lose ourselves, that's what's happening. It's part of the process. We're getting lost, and then we recognize again. There's contraction, and then there's avoidance. We control. Maybe we're going to meet aversion and then fear. And all these mind states are part of the journey. They're not other. As Saida Utejaniya says, those that call the hindrances, hindrances, don't know the value of them. (laughs) He really calls them stepping stones to seeing the truth, which is a totally different relationship. It's just so valuable to be able to soften up, to say, okay, this is what's happening, and it's part of the journey. Let me go on the journey with the fear and the contraction and the aversion. 
some time ago on a long intensive retreat that I was doing six months. I happened to face extreme hip pain. I mean, really extreme. Like, it felt like torture. And it was manifesting really quite continuously, whether I was sitting, lying down at night, standing, doing the walking, all four postures. <laughs> pain was there. And of course, um, I was trying, like we all do, many, many ways to fix the pain, to do something about it, to change it. And we probably all know that experience, that it doesn't really work. Because all these ways of strategies, uh, we may be completely involved, right? But not seeing the quality of the mind again that we're present with. I was totally involved in how can I fix this pain? And really attending to meeting the bodily sensation. But there was a whole period where I had not seen the quality of the mind, the relationship of the mind towards the pain. And it often is the case. You know, we really have to have a greater picture, kind of open spaciousness to notice, how am I relating to this? And suddenly it was just like, whoa, <laughs> I'm kicking myself constantly and creating more aversion for myself. Because the quality that I was relating to, to that bodily sensation that was extremely painful, was aversion, of course. Didn't like it. But I had not seen the aversion. And once I could attend, and that was exactly what happened, is that once I could see, oh, aversion, the heart, the whole body was stensed up, not only the hip, but my whole body was kind of like an iron wall. It was a piece of metal. And I had been in the process of trying really to be with it, you know, and not taking care. There was absolutely zero compassion. <laughs> All it was was resistance <laughs> in the form of aversion. Of course, below the aversion, just once I was kind of noticing the aversion, there was a lot of fear. Is this ever going to go away? Or am I worsening it? And it's bad. We all meet this. This is totally universal. And I know that with your smiles, you're relating <laughs> to what I'm saying here because that's, we all go through this. And so... How does one relate when we're feeling stuck, completely stuck? <laughs> There's only one way. That compassion meets the resistance. That really there's a possibility to say this is not okay. I don't want to accept this. I have fear. There is a presence of fear. And to have that possibility of acknowledging all these mind states with compassion. We're meeting our edge, meeting the boundary, meeting the limit. 
And what was the huge difference? It changed the whole process. What was the huge difference? I stopped pretending. I just stopped pretending that I was okay with the pain. Because underneath, that's exactly what it was. It wasn't okay, and it wasn't acceptable. And the fear manifested, and that's exactly what we need. And it's okay to say that it's not okay. (laughs) We don't have to accept everything we're meeting in our practice. We can't. Yet we totally engage. There's a full commitment to that transformation process. The heart contributes to the fact that, no, it's not okay. And I'm fully present to the fact that it's not okay. This too, I can meet. It's unpleasant. There's not liking it. Okay, this is what the experience is. Herman Hesse's has a really nice way to say it. He says, you know quite well deep within you that there's only a single magic, a single power, a single salvation, and that is called loving. Well then, love your suffering. Do not resist it. Do not flee from it. Give yourself to it. It is only the aversion that hurts. Nothing else. And that's, that's exactly the difference when we can love our suffering, meaning that, yeah, I'm willing to meet that reality and meet the aversion. There's the dropping away of the resistance because there's just love towards what is, which is then the suffering. So I wouldn't say that nothing else hurts because the body sensation is still hurting. (laughs) He says, you know, it's the only aversion that hurts. Body sensations hurt. That pain was still present. But there's a huge piece which is created by the mind and the reactivity of the mind, which is not the reality. It's how I relate. And there, there's an immense piece where we can find freedom. There's a author who wrote that, he says, one third of our suffering is real. Two thirds is just imaginary. (laughs) It's an overlay. And so two thirds, we can do something about it. That's the possibility of transformation. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. And it was great because it really enabled me to open up to that willingness, and I think we each have the willingness, to meet the suffering in reality. That what is happening here is one sort of suffering. But then how about real life? What is it that when I am in interaction with suffering and counting suffering out there, how do I respond? Well, in those days, there would be the same resistance. And definitely, there wasn't a lot of compassion, of softness of heart, more judgment, 
and kind of closing off, you know, not wanting to see the world. Ooh, it's too painful. The world is kind of in crisis. I've got friends that don't listen to the news because they just can't take it. These beings say, you know, I'm just too sensitive. I just can't take it. And it may be true, but what is underneath? And I'm not saying that we need to take in all of the news because it's just they're so showing all the negative sides, right? We don't never hear the positive stories, but there's a way that I saw for myself how we, I am hiding. And so what I experienced was the desire, the wish to really go and meet the suffering. And it was probably the hardest but the most rewarding teaching of my life. I decided to go and volunteer in a hospital. I have no skills in that domain, so absolutely out of sense of service to help others, to feel empathy for the suffering of other beings. And I thought, there's no better place than a hospital. Well, you're going to meet that. And so um, I did it. And it was so rewarding because very quickly, I noticed that I wasn't up to the situation, you know? It was a big hospital, and there were dying beings every single day, of course. Overwhelmed families, wounded people, so much suffering. And I thought, oh my goodness, you know? The very first days, it was just like, exactly like here want to run away, <laughs> you know, leave the next moment. But no, I had committed. And when I commit, usually I do keep my engagements. And so then there was another idea that came in the mindset. Oh, I got to open up completely. This is exactly what I need to do. Open to the suffering and then it's just going to pass through and not affect. And so to take a sincere look that it was much too much. And that's exactly what we do. That's why I'm counting the story. That, okay, what do I need to do? Need to open. Hmm? And so we think that by opening, we will resolve and won't meet the resistance. But it's not true. There's definitely a sense that we just don't open like that, even if it's our greatest wish. The heart is not ready for that. And so there was too much suffering. There wasn't the possibility of opening. But then a huge insight came, because the only thing that was presented to me was these hours of working. I went home, and then I practiced on my cushion to <laughs> really absorb and process what I was living. And it was just so amazing, because it was just so full of insight of saying, hey, wait a minute. What? What needs to do is just apply the middle path. And what was the middle path? And it's the same here. It's to meet the moment, this moment, rather than having the whole story where you're thinking about, you know, the number of days you're going to be here on your cushion with whatever you're sitting with, and that it's always going to be the same. No, it's in the moment. And to take taken in, 
just a little bit at a time. Gradually, and there's a choice for that. There's a definite choice that we can open to, not completely, but in a way that gradually we're not closing down and we're not in a space where not, we're not in reality because there's this ideal thought of wanting to open and we can't. So that is incredibly insightful. It was great. We don't need to crack open, break the shell. And often there is that thought. It would be pushing the process too quickly. And what does it do? It just reinforces the resistance. We close down. And fear manifests in a greater way, doesn't it? Fear really shows up in those moments. Stop breathing. (laughs) (laughs) Completely constricted. (laughs) Tartan Tulku says, compassion arises naturally as the quivering of the heart in the face of pain, one's and another's. True compassion is not limited by the separateness of pity nor by the fear of being overwhelmed. When we come to rest with the heart of compassion, we discover a capacity to bear witness to and hold dear with our vulnerable heart the sorrows and the beauties of the world. That opening, which I talked about, that tenderness, really brings up the vulnerable heart. There's a sense of tenderness, which is vulnerable, and it's bound to be. So, because it's, it's new. It's just like that first skin when, you know, babies are born. I just have a one-month-old nephew. <laughs> and I had forgotten the tenderness of the skin. And it feels just like that. The heart that's so tender that one really needs to take care, even, you know, texture and textiles, ah, it hurts. The heart will feel a bit like that, and it will feel overwhelmed. And we're at the edge of that life, emergence of shakiness, openness, and yet it feels true. There's a knowing that it feels so much more true than everything that we've tried to do to not meet that inner space, heart space. So it's not limiting. We might think that, but it's quite the contrary, that we are able then to meet those fears that manifest. And it's meeting the fear. Fear is rooted in aversion. Fear is a kind of aversion. 
it said there are two types of reversion. I don't know if you know that, but reversion has the you know aggressive form, which goes outside, right? That we called anger, hmm? hit and project. There's so much that a fire that we want you know to really go for it, and there's this form of aversion which is often manifesting in the uh, field of fear, which is a retreating. It's kind of a withdrawal, a contraction. It's a pulling back from experience, a collapsing, you can say, from what is presented to us that we don't want to see. And that's exactly linked to what Miyoshin talked about one evening, the craving of not becoming, that third type of craving where we want to hide away and don't want to see the conditions. And so there are many types of fear. You know, we have the fear of losing what we have, for example, or losing what we like. There's the fear that conditions attachments. There's the fear of experiencing what we don't want in practice. Or the fear of unpleasant bodily sensations or mental states that are painful. And it's so important to relate to those moments when fear is present. Schwanzer says, little fears cause anxiety. Big fears cause panic. (laughs) And that's exactly true, you know. How do we see this operate in our mind and heart? Maybe it is that we're having a moment of panic. And can we have the heart of compassion, that tenderness? So we'll know for ourselves. Due to our conditioning, there's a certain type of fear that will manifest. And that often is kind of overlaying our experience. It's often manifesting in that same way due to causes and conditions that we know well or that maybe we don't know. (laughs) But um, a certain type of fear will be more present. And so we can't avoid uncomfortable situations. It's just not possible if we want to open up like the flower is fully open. Kindness, an attentive presence of tenderness, is healing the wound, is disentangling the place where the wound is, where we feel tight, where we feel contracted. If it's not the whole body, maybe it's a karmic knot. And so then there's a way to work which is really allowing that feeling of acceptance. It's okay to be with the fear. Let me feel this. How does fear feel? What is it about? What is the story that is linked to that maybe emotional state that is present? And so we learn to be less afraid of the fear itself. And when we do get completely drowned into it, then we know that we need to back off. Retrieve in a way where we can rest the mind and heart in a safe place. So 
it's this beautiful dance of accompanying, and there's still presence. So it's really meeting the constellation of fear, and it happens. It is a constellation. Sometimes it's just thoughts, and it's just happening in the mind. Sometimes it's just physical sensations, you know, and sometimes it's both, and that's what emotion is about. Thoughts, physical sensation, a very complex constellation. The way to enable this meeting with tenderness is to bring acceptance. And just like I said before, to accept the fact that we don't want to feel the fear. To really be honest and sincere. Accepting what is present. That's all that we're asked to do in the practice, whatever it is. I was amazed with Sairo Pandita in all these years that I received teachings from him. There was never one time in my practice where he said to me, you've got to change something. You've got to change something? Never. And often it would be just, okay, did you notice it? I'd say, you know, all these horrible (laughs) mind states where I was sure he'd have a recipe. (laughs) Something, you know, that he'd say to me, that I was kind of really driving for, saying, oh, please tell me what to do, what can I do here, you know, doing something which would relieve. (laughs) Never. Never. It's extraordinary. Just meeting what is and staying with it and really holding, if it's really painful, holding it with heart, with care, with compassion. That he would say, not to change it, but how are you meeting this? And I found for myself that to have that image of a small child or an animal, if you prefer, a small animal. You know, often these small animals, they're so fearful. There's a cat around here that I tried to (laughs) catch one day the gray cat I don't know if you've seen it but wow it's just so fearful it's impossible but you know you wouldn't be feeding the fear in the child right you wouldn't be feeding the fear in a small animal and most likely you wouldn't be condemning the child or the small animal, for it to be fearful. What is the response? A soft touch, right? A caring attention. To have that same relationship, attitude towards ourselves, which is quite spontaneous with something that's cute and small and tiny (laughs) and gentle. Seeing ourselves as that small child often is quite helpful. It really only is love that we're talking about here. And it brings a little aliveness to the process. It really matters. It does matter. 
how it is that we're relating. So compassion brings sweetness. It's said that it's the quivering of the heart, that when it's in the presence of pain, just will manifest a bomb. The Dalai says, you must deal with adversity, face it, but absolutely do not fall into despair. That's the worst thing you can do. <laughs> he says, then the battle is lost. It doesn't matter what it is that you have to face, what type of suffering. It can be the greatest suffering. He says, but please, I plead you, don't fall into despair. It's said with so much love. What he means is just say, don't give up. There's no reason, no circumstance is allowing you to give up. And he also says that we can remember that the most difficult moments are the places that will wake us up the most. That it's true that we learn so much from those moments when it's hard. There's so many insights that come forth. And so we disentangle the heart and mind. This is a poem from Rumi. It's called Bird Wings. We're in the wings tonight. <laughs> um, Your grief for what you've lost lifts a mirror up to where you're bravely working. Expecting the worst, you look and instead Here's the joyful face you've been wanting to see. Your hand opens and closes and opens and closes. If it were always a fist or always stretched open, you would be paralyzed. Your deepest presence is in every small contracting and expanding. The two as beautifully balanced and coordinated as bird wings. <laughs> and that's exactly it. Can't always be open, you know? That's exactly what I learned in that hospital. It's really the balance of expansion and contraction. Expansion and contraction. One moment we'll go forward. We'll take a step, whoops, fear, <laughs> we'll go backwards. But it's just staying with the process of opening and closing. And really, that's the learning process. It takes so much courage and strength of heart. But we benefit. It also inspires more compassion towards ourselves. That very truth of experience, when it's felt and heartfelt, it definitely leads one to want to see more. And so we act. And compassion, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, is a verb. It is an expression, an act. We help ourselves then, because we know that it's the only thing that we can do, really. And therefore, there's a greater sense of acceptance, less judgment less critical mind. And it might still be present. And it can be there, you know. It can be heck. <laughs> but something else is also happening. So 
we trust the path of compassion and know that all human beings face this truth. That's really how we interconnect. That if another being is mean to us, we understand that the source of that reality is ignorance, is suffering. I don't think that any being really manifests aversion or anger if there's wisdom and there's an awakened heart. The only reason why there's so much suffering is that there's so much ignorance. It's incredible the amount of ignorance that there is and how confusion creates other confusions. Like, I mean, look at the world. We think that we're going to go to war and make peace out there, you know. (laughs) It's just incredible to see the causes and conditions and the results of so much pain. And so Gandhi says, it begins with ourselves. We need to be the change that we want to see in the world. The Buddha said so beautifully, you know, that you think that the hot coal iron that you throw at the other being is going to hurt them. Who is the one that gets hurt? It's us. All that activity that you think you're projecting out there, right? They're the mean ones, the enemy. But we're all in it together. It's just such an incredible interconnectedness that we're really seeing now the results. There's no doubt that we're seeing the results of ignorance. The following story is a witnessing that really relates so beautifully to the depth of compassion in the face of suffering and that the response is not one of aversion. The Dalai Lama met with a friend and he has many elder Tibetan monks that have fled from Tibet since he uh, himself fled out of Tibet and they rejoined the Tibetan community in exile in Dharamsala. And after having spent 20 years in Chinese prisons, this Tibetan monk was really expressing immeasurable brutality, fear, isolation. What he had gone through for two decades was only pain. And so, of course, the Dalai Lama said, you know, were there ever times when your life was truly in danger? Which was clearly a question to ask. And the monk paused for a while, and he said, you know, there were only a few occasions when I faced real danger. And those were the occasions I was in danger of losing my compassion for the Chinese. That is so inspiring to me. And it can be a bit daunting, you know, my gosh, you know, who is this being? (laughs) But 
the practice. That's what it will do for us. It's just so amazing. It's remarkable to be able to say that the only moments that there was true danger was when he lost his compassion for the enemy. Tremendous courage of heart and a willingness to look clearly. Clarity. To remain open and spacious, that's what it is. And it's all born out of a heart that holds kindness. This is a beautiful poem. Um, it's from Naomi Shibhavnai. It's called Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. Isn't that beautiful? Only kindness that makes sense anymore. I really hope that it's not discouraging, but inspiring. <laughs> because what we're doing here, and whatever we're facing, and this poem says, you must meet sorrow, fully meet sorrow, or grief, or fear. Be ready to allow whatever it is that is present to manifest. The fruit is love and compassion. We can't eat the fruit <laughs> without having the conditions that allow us to see everything. When you begin to touch your heart and let your heart be touched, you begin to discover that it is bottomless, that it doesn't have any resolution that this heart is really huge, vast, and limitless.
you begin to discover how much warmth and gentleness is there, as well as how much space. Pema Sudra. That is exactly what is happening, is that by meeting what is, there begins to be a sense of vastness, of spaciousness. That is the essence of love. That is the boundless heart. That pure love that can take anything in. That doesn't select, separate, prefer this to that. And that is what we are manifesting here in our own way. Just kindness in the best way possible. Acceptance, you can say. Non-judgmental attention. All of these are synonyms. And with the love and the compassion and the wisdom that we nurture and hold for ourselves, we then understand and can allow for that same quality to emerge with other beings. Kind to ourselves, kind to all beings. Just kind in the world. And therefore the meaning is that when we live, we just help. That's what Ramdas is. You live, you help, wherever it is possible. That's what human beings are here for. We're only here for 90 years, says the Dalai Lama, at the most, 100 maybe, on this planet. We're just visitors. This planet doesn't belong to us. Just try, he says. Do the best you can. And that's exactly what we're doing here as a visitor on this planet. And that's it. It's enough. So I close with a saying from the Dalai Lama again. He says, the more we truly desire to benefit others, the greater the strength and confidence we develop, and the greater the peace and happiness we experience. That is all. And that's all we want, peace and happiness. So let's sit for just a few seconds. Wishing that all living beings be at peace and truly wishing to live in harmony with one another. May all living beings live in harmony with one another. 
May all living beings be liberated. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.